0: Parent show sponsored by Raiden Solicitors, award winning specialist family lawyers. See RaidenSolicitors.co.uk. We've heard from our listeners many times that new parents focus very much on the preparations for the arrival of their child. Creating a safe, warm, stimulating environment with all of the things that they need is seen as the most important things on their minds. And for first-time parents at least, it is difficult to be fully prepared for what happens after that big day. And one of the first decisions that needs to be taken, often from the perspective of practicality and returning to work, is childcare. Even if a parent is not planning to return to work, the first months will inevitably expose the need for support and to socialise children. Then, of course, there's the more taxing and longer term question of preparing for a child's development. Well, to help us guide new parents and prospective parents through the decision process associated with nursery childcare, we're joined today by June O'Sullivan, MBE. June is the CEO of London Early Years Foundation, the largest childcare charitable social enterprise in the UK, which actually operates 39 nurseries in and around London. June also advises the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge Foundation on their Early Years Project. She's an outspoken advocate on the eradication of child poverty, advising the government on eradicating child obesity, and in her spare time is an author of a series of entertaining and incisive evidence-based books advising the Early Years sector on operating childcare facilities. June, welcome to Radio Verland. We're very glad to have you here. Thank you very
1: much. I'm delighted to be here myself. I love the radio
0: you're our sort of person. Thank you for being with us. Now, you clearly know what you're talking about when it comes to early years development, both from a provider and a consumer's point of view. Before we move on to talk about all things uh, related to choosing a nursery, tell us a little bit about the London Early Years Foundation. What makes it so special? We call it LEAF,
1: L-E-Y-F, and it's special because it's a social enterprise. And I know that's not the sort of term that drops off everybody's lips, but what it means is that we have a business model that allows us to subsidize a large number of places for children who couldn't otherwise attend a nursery or afford to attend a nursery. So um, we have this rather beautiful model and attract staff who really buy into this. Um, but if you're a parent arriving at any leaf nursery, you wouldn't know Who's the prime minister's child and who's not? Um, because the emphasis is, t- is entirely on quality and the quality of uh, opportunity that every child gets once they arrive. And if you look at the kind of outcomes that you know were measured by Ofsted, we exceed the uh, national standards quite substantially so what we're doing works
0: by a factor of by three a factor I think it was, three,
1: indeed um, so something about what yeah. we do seems to work though like any person I'm not going to say we're perfect all of the time by any means and we do get things a bit wrong at times and we um, try and very much rectify them but uh, in general our philosophy is that uh, children matter children are at the heart of what we do, but also um, it's kind of like an onion ring. When you peel away the, the layers, you find the next layer of the parents, then the staff, then the community, and then actually research. So we reckon that good quality is driven by really good quality staff. So we put a lot of effort into training our staff right up to degree level. In fact, we've got our own degree with the University of Wolverhampton. And all that goes along that means that the better they're trained, the better they're supported, the better the resources we can provide, the better the outcome for both the child and their parent. So I think that's the kind of emphasis that we have. Um, And that's why we think we do as well as we do.
0: Indeed. And uh, with uh, 39 nurseries around London, you're obviously being successful at what you do. H- how important do you think it is uh, to the development of a child to be at a good nursery school? It's
1: extraordinarily important. And. Um... There was a piece of research that was driven by the Duchess of Cambridge recently, and she asked the public five questions about, you know, what matters for them, for their children and um, what was important in terms of children's learning. And what we discovered was um, 76 percent of the population has never really given a thought to what happens to small children and and the, you know, the impact of being at an early year's setting whether it's a childminder or a preschool or a nursery um and that was quite stunning because if you think about it the rearing of a child isn't just for the parents and the family it's for the whole community because everybody benefits from having healthy children you know great well-being you know matters when you're older if they're going to be your carers you know it goes right through at every level and so um Mm. The impact on early years, therefore, is very, very important in terms of giving them the right opportunities, the right support. And there are, I tell you, libraries full of research and, and, you know, folder after folder with international research and UK research about which says, you know, the impact of the early years is really, really measurable in terms of the benefits to the child's long term learning.
0: It is an extraordinary statistic. 76% don't think about the importance of this at an early stage. No,
1: and and I guess that's partly because it's a long time since we had a conversation in the country about what do we understand by childhood. You know, what does a good childhood look like for our children in the modern context? Because childhood changes, you know, with with the way the world changes. And also, if you do think about Mm. the conversations we do have, they tend to be pretty... Uh, negative in the sense they tend to be picking on the problems rather than the the joy and the glory of, of, of small children and, and what they can offer to us as a society. And, you know, just gone through COVID, we, we had to keep some of our 15, in fact, of our nurseries open during the original lockdown in March and April. And there was a lot of negative um, and anxious press, I think, at the time about how people were responding and the fear and um, and you know the 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 weariness of it all and you know and but we had children coming into the nursery and honestly, the anxieties of parents and staff were completely allayed by the joy of those children arriving to play with their friends, telling you that covid was pink and round like the moon with spikes coming out of it but if you washed <laughs> your hands and if you stayed away from somebody in this thing they called social distance and your mummy and daddy are locked down not in lockdown are locked lockdown then you'd be all right and that was <laughs> fine because all they wanted to do was come and play with their friends and bring joy to everybody about them and it kept me going, I have to say, every day mm. at three o'clock when I had a call in, you know, on my laptop to them. It just kept me going.
0: I think they had a pretty good <laughs> handle on it by the sound of things. I've heard uh, less incisive descriptions of what, <laughs> what coronavirus is all about from uh, much older people. Well done three-year-old. <laughs> So how how should uh, how should we consider t- childcare at this early stage? Is it really supervision, um, or, or is it entertainment, or is it an introduction to learning and uh, education for a child?
1: That's really such a great question because it's a probably a combination of all of those things. But um, not to bore you too much with statistics. But another statistic, which is also in the 70 percent, is that that's the number of parents who have to go back to work, uh, you know, when they've had their babies. Um, And that's quite a lot of mostly women, obviously, um, who have to make a decision about where their children will be looked after when, you know, when they go back to their workplace. And that's partly because we have really developed an economy that's based on two incomes. Um, and so therefore, uh, people have a need to return to work. Um, often part time, it's true. And your average parents uh, will try and come back within sort of six six to nine months of their maternity leave because that sort of fits in with, with their entitlement. Some parents will take uh, the full 12 months. Um, because they can afford to or their companies are willing to or that their situation allows for that. So that's the first thing that, you know, parents have a making a decision to part with their babies to a um, stranger, effectively, um, for up to 10 hours a day um, to be supported and looked after and cared for. So the phasing is important in terms of how we understand that. So when you first turn up to a nursery with a tiny four-month-old, five-month-old, six-month-old, it's really about the care and the the love, that the sense of that that you get. That's the first kind of indicator of what's going to happen. Now, of course, you can't not teach babies because they are just a bundle of synaptic connections with their brains zizzing 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 because they're learning so much so quickly it's extraordinary when you watch them but so learning for them is you talking to them singing them copying you having time to observe what you're doing you supporting them with the right resources so they learn to crawl you know to sit up to crawl eventually to walk uh you kind of guiding them to eat with a spoon to uh respond to you to you know to wave bye-bye all of that stuff now a lot of people might think that that's not learning or that's not teaching and learning in, in, a, in a traditional way but in fact it is extraordinarily uh, important and um the most sympathetic um and um well-trained and completely tuned in member of staff will get that and understand that. And I've always advocated for babies. I just wrote a book recently and A is for apprentice and B is for babies because babies are really important. And often people think that just keeping them safe and, you know, giving them some toys and, you know, just making sure they're fed and and that they have a sleep and that they're, you know, safe is enough. But actually, it is not enough. It's just not enough at all because babies are bright eyed, you know, interested, curious. And the more we engage with that curiosity, the more we give them, you know, a chance to try things out, the more that they develop and and the more we, we kind of, in a sense, open their opportunities out for them. And their brain is just then zizzing even more so that this is really important. So you have to choose a nursery where you feel that, the baby staff are well-trained, experienced and sympathetic, but also knowledgeable about how children and how babies develop. I can't say that strong enough. I mean, babies are fantastic. Uh, and that's a, a training programme we run with our staff as well. Babies are absolutely fantastic and it's, they deserve the absolute best nursery provision, childminder, preschool, whatever. They deserve the absolute best because they are like a bunch of zizzing brain power.
0: So the way you put it there, June, there's a, a balance between entertainment and, and learning, uh, but which can't be separated. No. you, you singing songs and doing pictures, um, That that is not just entertaining the child, that is helping them develop and learn. So, so where would a parent start to find the nursery that matches that uh, picture that you painted so vividly uh, in the last few minutes? Uh, how do they start? Where's the first place to begin when choosing a nursery? In fact, I suppose the first question should really be when should they start looking for a new nurse, for a nursery for their child? Oh,
1: that's such a, uh, an emotive question because some of our nurseries have such <laughs> long waiting lists. Because um, so when you think about how do you find a good nursery? So you, you can go on a website um, and some local authorities run a, a sort of advice service. But for the most part, and we've, we do research on this year on year, it's your friends, your local baby clinic, uh, maybe your family. uh, It's their recommendations that always tend to be the ones that kind of really, really drive your choice. Um, And so you're likely to be um, going to the nursery pretty early on, because um, some nurseries have very long waiting lists. Um, Because parents kind of break into kind of, Two, I mean, and I'm used to this kind of simply here, but there's kind of two groups. There's the planner who's planned the whole thing out, you know, has got everything ready in advance, who's thought about it, who's been on the website, who's read the books, who's talked to everybody. And then there's the oh my gosh, I'm going back to work in two, two, three weeks. I got to find a nursery, you know. <laughs> um, and so
0: I think you're talking about women and men there. <laughs>
1: and and it's, it's, you know, and, and there's also who makes the choice. In some cases, the mum feels okay to make the choice on her own. But for the most part, whether you're living with the dad or whether you're not, they like somebody else to come along. So in some cases, we have the whole family coming to have a look, you know, auntie, grandma, you know, they all come. And the more the merrier really because it affirms the mum's choice which at the, t- at the time of making such a choice is highly anxious highly anxious um, because you you know you're you're going to leave your tiny beautiful baby in a place that you haven't really formed a relationship with yet so you do need other people to view this so i guess for me it always makes sense to be more of a planner than a last if you want exactly what you want um right
0: so. that's a very good point which you just made there june it, it you don't know in advance what the yeah. situation is going to be like and it is a matter of trust you're, you're having to trust people who you really don't know so learning from your friends and from families and trusted sources is perhaps the best introduction to a nursery yeah, and facility you have to
1: go with your gut uh, i remember my daughter um I I was looking for a childminder for her, in fact, because uh, it would work better with my my working hours at the time. And I remember um, thinking, I, I don't want anyone who smokes and I don't want anyone who has a dog. They were just my two things. And I ended up with a childminder who had both a dog and who had the occasional cigarette because I fell in love with her. I loved her vibe, her attitude, Uh, her warmth, the way she made me feel, uh, the way she responded to my daughter, um, all of those things. So sometimes you go in with a list. must be this. I've read this in the book. I've seen this. This is the kind of thing. It has to be this, that and the other. And you go in and it ticks all of those boxes. And there's something in your vibe that makes you think, I'm not sure about this. I don't know. It doesn't feel right to me. And then you go around the corner and it's much less, it's maybe more chaotic. It's maybe poorer. It might not have all the fancy pants stuff that, you know, the other one has, but something in it makes you feel warm and toasty. And, you know, your child responds to that warm and toastiness as well. And you choose that. So you can be all, you know, very organized with your long list, which is a good thing. But actually, in the end, To me, the best decisions are always made instinctively. And so many times we experience that. You know, parents will come to us and look around and say, I really love this. I love, you know, the member of staff. I love the vibe. I love the fact, look, you've got this and that and the other. But I just want to check out some other places. And we really appreciate that and really like them to do that. And sometimes they come back and sometimes they don't. But the fact is, it means that, you know, they've given a good Broad look at everything else. And in the end, they inevitably parents will say, This just feels right. It's not, you know, it's a bit far away from where I live, or it's not got really good parking, or, you know, the garden is a bit small, but somehow or other, I feel right here. And I think that's a really, you know, really powerful. It's a really powerful thing to, 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 it's a bit like being a manager. There's always something about your, your gut giving you a kind of a uh, an indicator that you need to listen to it because there's something in there
0: so a parent is going to start with a list of criteria whether it is no Mm dogs, size of garden the amount of uh, cigarettes (laughs) that the uh, primary care worker uh, smokes during a day and uh, whatever it's going to be an emotive list and it might have more practical things on such as how far it is uh, affordability whether they've got the uh, the capacity to to take on your child a a whole bunch of things but eventually you're going to arrive at a list of alternatives I guess just having one choice is is not going to be good because of the waiting Mm. list issue and um, uh, having alternatives Mm. as a backup is is a good thing so they're going to arrive at a a point where they've got a short list of potential nurseries to attend and then the visit there's no way of, uh, of really getting that instinct without actually making the visit and smelling the place mm-hmm. and seeing what, what it's like. What should a parent look out for when they go to visit a nursery to, to get that feel of, of what it's really like?
1: Um, well, they're different for different age children, but let's just stick with the babies for a moment and then we can look at the older children. But for a baby, um, you want to go into a space that is very homely that feels warm, um, that has got mirrors. Children, babies particularly, love mirrors. Mirrors matter, and they observe their features and their faces and their hands, and they do a lot of learning through looking at mirrors. Um, Lots of nurseries will have a black and white space because... um, Much to the chagrin, I think, of the pastel brigade, babies aren't interested in pastel colours. It doesn't actually do anything for them. Black and white is the uh, thing that gets them going with, you know, every now and then you have an accent colour. So, you know, a piece of red or a piece of silver.
0: You are so <laughs> radical and so <laughs> irreverent. You how can you not have pastel colours? Oh no, golly, it's a bit like when yourself.
1: your friend buys you a present when you have a baby, and they come with another soft toy, and you just go, "Oh my gosh!" You know, these do nothing for learning soft <laughs> toys. Okay, they can have one of their little transition items. You know, one of their bappies are you know, which is usually a manky piece of blanket or a tiny battered you know bunny that they drag around with them everywhere, which is very very important to their <laughs> mental well-being, but actually. Actually, what children what babies like is something that actually responds um, and so mirrors uh, uh, things that are dramatic in the way their eye their um, their, vis- their vision is developing actually these things matter to them because they can see better and they can see contrast um, they you want um What I I hate, personally, pet pet hate of mine, is, you know, um, all the babies lined up in high chairs. I freak out about that kind of thing. I like the babies to be sat, clipped in. You know, there's clip-in chairs around the table with a member of staff when they're eating. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter if they make a mess, but we'll have a tray for them if necessary. Because babies are artists. And, you know, the first piece of art they produce is using their hands to create a wonderful... uh, Art piece, um, which is the beginning of their learning to write and their mark making, using yogurt or something, spread all over their faces and all down the front and all in the mats and stuff. If you have people who are so paranoid about that sort of thing and who are cleaning them every five minutes, maybe that's not the greatest thing because while you don't want them to be filthy when you pick them up, you do want them to actually be able to wallow in all the experiences that's actually going to be good for them and that's going to set out the pathway to them becoming readers writers speakers you know and 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 these starts in that kind of you sort of messy play it's a really powerful thing and so that's I think for me it matters that they understand that that the staff understand that and that that's allowed and encouraged and the children enjoy it so there's lots of sensual play lots of kind of gloopy mess lots of opportunities for them to really explore with their hands and their mouths because that's how they learn um
0: That is really a really interesting point you make there about the the connection between messy play and being allowed to explore boundaries and developing into adults who write and are creative. It's so exciting to hear that. Exactly.
1: And parents, especially if it's your first child, you don't always know this. You know, you, you don't know. I mean, it's a bit like there's a thing called a schema. Uh, you see it mostly in toddlers, two-year-olds plus, but it's basically a way of thinking. How many parents I've <laughs> I've spoken to who said why do they keep putting things down the bathroom down the loo behind the sofa I can't find anything and I say to them actually this is a really interesting schema and we have a name for it and it's called a posting schema and it's part of the way their brain is helping them to figure out ideas and to figure out things like the idea of permanence and impermanence and stuff and this is not them being difficult and it's not them trying to annoy you it's actually part of the real learning and so at nursery to avoid them putting everything down the we would have games where they throw things, we would have baskets where they can carry things around, we would have dens where they can hide, you know, because we understand that these are parts of the learning processes. And actually, instead of fighting with the child and saying no, you actually create the environment that allows this to happen. So actually, the child is following their learning pathway in a very helpful and resourced way, And actually, it does them the world of good, because then it sets them up for their further learning, you know, their more official learning as they get older. So I think it's, uh, you need a staff member who can talk to you about this, who can say, don't be freaked out, because they're going to put everything in their mouths. And that includes all this stuff that we've got out here, but none of it is poisonous. You know, don't be worried about the fact that they might come home with their little, their little, you know, hand grasping around some odd piece of wood or something, because we've got it in our treasure baskets which is full of treasure and interesting you know sensual bits of materials but this is part of their learning so I think for a parent they need staff who can talk them through this and explain it and share with them you know how the child and the baby is developing so that actually they're they're recognizing this and then it becomes a partnership because the best relationship with a parent is a partnership one where you're both having a conversation about the most important person in the world, which is your child. And there's nothing greater than the joy of a parent enjoying the joy of the staff member who's saying, I think she's nearly ready to walk. Watch her this weekend. I have a feeling she'll take her first step. You know, what a glorious sharing that is. And you want to be in an environment where that sharing is live and their conversation is, you know, warm and engaging. And that, ex, you know, that member of staff is, is, you know, in a way is guiding the parent to, to, to look to things that they may have not know is even coming down the line because it's their first child. But the second and third children, it's, it's different.
0: June, is that is that where the gut feel comes into its element as much as anything? When when you're introduced to the staff at the nursery, you get a feeling for how friendly they are, how uh, how much yeah. they care about the children. Is, is that more important than the qualifications which they might um, have?
1: It usually goes hand in hand. That experience and qualifications tend to drive that level of knowledge. <clears throat> excuse me, and experience, and I think the two connect. If you if you do an analysis of um, parent questionnaires we do annual parent questionnaires everyone thinks price is going to be number one but it's not number one is tends to be location how near are you to their to their home and number two is the friendliness of staff the sense of staff uh, engagement the fact that you know can you imagine going to a nursery or to uh, anywhere and you know your first visit and the member of staff doesn't bend down to say hello to your child And that happens, you know, that happens, you know, that they don't ask a question to the child, who's probably quite shy at the time, you know, or they don't comment on the child and say, you know, you know, glorious brown eyes you have or, you know, look at that lovely little smile and makes an, you know, makes an effort to to sort of engage with the child. It would seem strange, but it does happen. So again, that kind of thing is a real warming, I think, of that first sense of relationship are, well, it's the first meeting, we'll go into the office and fill out the paperwork. No, the first meeting should really be, let's go into the nursery. We, well, you have to fill out a little bit of paperwork because we won't let you in otherwise because of uh, all the various rules. But uh, let's go around. Let us let me talk you through it. Let me show you. Let me tell you about what could happen. Ask me questions. Make, make it a conversation. Um, and if you come away after that feeling more informed, more knowledgeable and more confident about starting to make a judgment, and they're saying, Come back again if there's anything you need, you know. And or if you stop them and say, Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Does this happen? Uh, then actually, then you started at, sort of at the beginning, probably, of a pretty good relationship because when you start with your baby. I mean, for the most part, our babies don't leave us till they're four and a half. And by which point the second one has arrived. So, you know, that's, a, that's quite an investment in a place for maybe up to six years of your life, you know, with um, so you, you, you kind of have to get it right
0: first thing for parents to consider when they arrive at the nursery to take a look around it is don't be put off by the the mess you want to see uh, children having fun and enjoying themselves you want to be engaging with staff who obviously have to have the right qualifications to be working there but have to have that that special something that interest that love of children uh, which would be very evident what are the things should a parent look out for or maybe what should they be asking the nursery uh, about the uh, beliefs and the uh, attitudes which they have to, to when, looking after children
1: again so when parents come for their babies they tend to focus on safety um, and routine and routine is very important so I think a first question to ask a nursery is what does the routine look like you know, how flexible is it? You know, um, what happens at sleep time? Uh, Some people like a cot for their babies. Some places we don't have necessarily many cots. We only have cots for the tiny babies, but most of the children are in what little coracle, so kind of like little nests, you know, and the staff Mm. sit with them when they sleep. You know, that matters because babies need a lot of sleep. I mean, Sometimes parents don't understand that. They think if they sleep in the day, they won't sleep at night. But actually, children need sleep um, and they sleep better at night if they have their sleep in the day because otherwise they're over exhausted. But when you're, you know, when your two year old comes with you, then then the, the questions are different. Again, you ask about the routine and then you also spend quite a lot of time. I think all parents spend a lot of time on food. You know, what does lunch look like? What kind of food are you providing for the child? Um, How often do they eat? Can I? Can we give them this? Uh, we seem to have a lot of children with allergies now. Um, how will we accommodate that? Uh, if they're vegetarian, would that be okay? You know, all of those kind of questions, I think really are important, especially two-year-olds, because two-year-olds are are emerging young uh, characters and they're figuring things out and they're figuring things out for themselves. And people often refer to two-year-olds in quite a negative way. They often talk about, Temper tantrums and uh, terrible twos, but actually, I think that's really unfair on two-year-olds. Because what two-year-olds are doing is that they're, they're learning to speak, they've learned to walk, they've figured out how to do things, a lot of things themselves, and they want to do it. You know, me do it. You know, uh, I do. You know, they're very ego. They're they're they you know they know what they want and how they want things, and so it's very important that we have a a setting that allows a level of independence, but. But within a sort of safe parameter. So um, often parents come full of anxiety about food. She won't eat this, he won't eat that, um, terrified of this, they're going to end up with, um, you know, deficiency at this rate, they can only do this. And that's true. Um, Two year olds are very particular about food because they're developing their taste buds. So, taste feels very strong to them. So things that we take for granted um, are tasting quite sort of pungent for some of them. And also they're very particular about colour so they don't want their carrots to touch their peas and they don't want a big slop <laughs> of stew chuck in the middle of their plate and the portions need to be really the right size I feel like I'm I'm telling the story of the three little the three bears now here and the right size <laughs> porridge but it is that sort of thing I think that you know that story is right it's too hot it's too cold it's too salty so you need staff that understand that because um, and recognize that food matters. Um, I mean, food is a big issue at LEAF. Um, I have actually set up the first early year Chef Academy, so so important do I think food is, to train staff and particular chefs about the actual uh, nutritional needs of, of small children, um, portion size, waste management, um, how do you create brilliant cakes without putting sugar in them, you know, what do children need? How do you avoid just giving them what is often perceived as the, the diet of a 40 year old woman on, 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 uh, on a diet rather than, uh, you know, a very active two year old? All of those things um, I felt needed to be uh, kind of captured in a proper chef academy where we could actually explore some of this stuff, research some of this stuff and teach each other more about I'm so
0: surprised that that hasn't been done already. It's, uh, it seems the way you describe it, there it is. Uh, it is. It's common sense. It's. It's. It's really obvious that children are going to eat differently and need to have a, a, a diet which. Co- caters for their special needs. Um, I'm surprised that you have uh, you had to set up the academy yeah, we, yourself. we
1: set it up and we also wrote the first qualification because you imagine there wasn't actually a qualification. Um, so while people like Jamie Oliver um, and Henry Dimbleby and stuff have done amazing work in schools, nobody bothered to think about the early years. Everybody always focuses on schools and, you know, the first five years are actually the far more important because you've set the framework down by then. And the patterns are, of eating are almost in place. Well, they are in place by then so it's much harder to undo that than to take your average two-year-old and present them with um, you know a range of food because again the power of the group is important and I think a lot of parents are very grateful for that so then their two-year-olds come they feel that they're going to be eating together with other children and that's more likely to mean that they're going to eat things that they won't eat at home Uh, but also that we haven't got the emotional kind of connection in the same way as a parent and a child has you know where the power of food um, is really well managed by a two-year-old over his mother and father um, as to what he will eat and how he can get them running around the kitchen worrying about (laughs) whether he's going to starve to death. And as I often say to parents, we don't see many two-year-olds who starve. In the end, they eat enough because they need much much less than you think and they need lots of it uh, throughout the day rather than this notion of just the three meals. Um so you find when you're in a nursery, you seem to be feeding them all, you know, all the hours of the day because they have snack. Um, and there is a debate by uh, some um, dietitians that if you didn't have snack, would they eat a better lunch? But then there is the, de- the, the other debate, which is they have tiny tummies and they are very active. And so maybe, you know, small portions throughout the day is uh, it leads to a more rounded uh, dietary kind of um, benefit for them I don't know but I mean I can tell you that our children will uh, will enjoy mackerel pate on toast they'll have uh, you know they have beetroot soup they have uh, cakes made from parsnips and beetroot you know all sorts of things because the colours are beautiful and it's part of the day um, and they wouldn't perhaps eat them in the same way at home. So again, when you broaden the child's culinary experience and in London, you know, we have the benefit in our organisation, we have 102 spoken languages. So we've got a range of culinary opportunities here and our chefs are from all over the world. Then those children, you know, become, they, they you know, much more kind of, Curious and willing to to try things that they may not do at home, Um, and so if you're at nursery, you know from eight to six, a lot of your dietary benefits is you know is held at the nursery. So you really need to make sure as a parent that they're giving them really good food. You know, I try to have it locally sourced so that, you know, you don't have the uh, sort of, you know, the air miles connected with all of that. Because, you know, really, we have a, a duty to our children to think in terms of our green agenda, our sustainability um, and all of that stuff as well. Um, and also, we like to be able to trace where the food came from, should there be any major problems, yes. uh, you know, Um and and so, um, and you know, the world is wide when it comes to opportunities, but I think seasonal food is a much better way of delivering. So it don't, I don't expect them to be eating mango at this time of year, <laughs> but I do expect them to be eating, you know, um, sort of blackberry and apple pies and and various, you know, things that are relevant to the time. So it, it, food, I think, is a really powerful one and becomes almost more of an issue around the toddler phase, Um, for parents. For the three and four-year-olds, I think then parents get much more concerned about what are they learning. Um, The word we use is a word that's not familiar to everybody, but it's pedagogy. And pedagogy is simply the term that describes how we lead children to learn. And leading children to learn is a very complex uh, and a very um, great sort of combination of science and art of early years teaching and and play a central.
0: And I noticed on your website that you use the analogy of strands of intertwined rope to illustrate your philosophy towards pedagogy at LEAF.
1: Yes. And for for LEAF, um, I've spent 10 years researching this and currently actually doing my doctorate on it. But it's like um, 10, 10, you know, seven strands. You have to have leadership for a culture of excellence. So the parent needs to get along with the lead, the manager, and the key person in their in their room and a key person is the person allocated to their child to be the kind of bridge between the home and the nursery to spend more time with the child to do more activities with the child and to really know them and so in the evening when a parent or anybody collects them that there's you know a sense of connection and mm-hmm. even if they're gone off shift that they've left that information with somebody else so it's like the somebody you'd ring up who should know your child better that said children choose who they like more so you might allocate them sally and they might prefer daniel you know but (laughs) sally would still have the responsibility of making sure um the child's kind of records are kept up to date and stuff but they may gravitate to daniel more no one's going to say you can't go to daniel he's not your key person you know (laughs) but you know you know that 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 is the case and so leadership really is around that it's around in our case action research which is so. New children join the room, the nursery room, and you have a look and you think, this isn't working so well for us. These children are, say, for example, uh, you have many more boys in one year. It's often the case. Uh, we might have many more girls one year. Um, boys respond very well outside. They work better outside. They, uh, it's just just how it is. So we might need to rethink how much outside, spe- outside activities are going on to make sure um uh you know that actually that we're kind of in a way responding to their to their learning needs more effectively um, so that would be a piece of action research as a um, and we could do a much bigger piece about uh you know introducing new foods or um we could be studying you know are we teaching them maths well enough you know are we spending too much time on on number and maybe not enough time on shape Uh, our volume. Um, So that's that. And then we have uh, the spiral curriculum. And really, for anyone listening out there, curriculum simply means the experiences, the activities and the subjects that are taught in the day. And in the early years, there's a thing called the early years foundation stage, which is a framework uh, of seven areas that really every nursery covers. It becomes much more apparent in the older children than, say, in the babies. But it's 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 the obvious things. It's uh, language. It's mm-hmm. personal and social. It's physical development. And then it's the kind of other ones like creativity, understanding the world, mathematical learning, you know, science learning. And it can be done indoors and outdoors. And it can be done in any way, shape or form. But the three more important things always are supporting their physical development, supporting their language and communication, and most of all, supporting their personal and social behaviour and development. You know, and that's central. And I always say to the staff, if you get those three right, in a way, the rest will come because they'll be the means by which you support those three. So if you're doing a big creative activity with the children, you are in effect supporting their physical development their personal and social ability to cooperate, to be part of a group, to persevere, to concentrate. And then finally to extend their language, you know, mm. to introduce mm-hmm. them to big words, nice words, words that they get their tongue around, delightful words. Uh, you know, I often say to my staff um, when they join us, you know, we're doing a training i'll say, okay, I don't want to hear the word nice. Let's go around and tell me every other word that we can use instead of nice so that we can, you know, just expand. Yeah.
0: I'm with you on that one. The word nice means nothing, does it? It's, it's such yeah. A just expand mouth
1: that, I say. Yeah. It's a bit like saying that's not very nice, is it? Well, what is nice? You know, it's a fantastic, amazing, you know, superfluous, you know, it's wonderful. It's all sorts of things, but it's not just nice. So I think there's all of those things and that's the spiral curriculum and then the other things that come with that people often don't think about is the environment is the third teacher how you set the room up how you set the outdoors you know how you engage with the children what amazing activities they come in to do that's the environment and then it's followed very powerfully by the harmonious relationships that you create and that's not simply with your child and the parent but it's with the other staff it's with your community It's with people like who might come in to do activities. It's like inviting people in. It's about your student in the room. It's all sorts of things. But harmony matters to children. They do not like conflict. They like harmony. And then you have safe, fit and healthy, which is all the stuff around obesity and risk. There's a whole program here, Steve, about risk, about how do you let a child climb higher? How do you let a child create dens? How do you not panic when a child falls? You know, all of that is really a big topic. And then the other two are home learning, which has been very big during COVID because we've done rafts of stuff with parents who have been at home with their children using the Internet. And, uh, you know, activities and Zoom dates and all sorts of other things. And then finally, for us, which is very important if you're a social business at all. I mean, it's important for many people, but for us, particularly important. You have to connect with your community. And that's important because every community is different. So a nursery in one part of London, say, in Barking, is going to have a different set of relationships, say, to a nursery in Westminster, to a nursery in Hammersmith and Fulham because you are of the community and a nursery is a catalyst for community engagement so whether you're running a food bank or whether you're running a trips to the elderly home or whether you're involved in the local art fair or whether you're developing something with a film academy like our soho nursery all of those things are really reflective of where you are and that is in All of those strands together is what we call the leaf pedagogy. So we use all of those methods to lead a child to learn because often people think learning is simply teaching and doing stuff, but it's not. It's a much deeper and a much richer um, set of skills, understanding, knowledge and experience. And
0: those seven strands which you've just taken us through, uh, which each of them, I think, could be a, a topic of discussion all on their own they oh, yeah. they are all based in uh, essentially in common sense they're very understandable easy to understand and see the connection between for example the uh, environment and the ability to learn and yet there is so much research and uh, and experience gone in behind that to develop this into a pedagogy that's true
1: that's true um
0: June, you mentioned uh, a book, the A to Z of Early Years. If any of our parents uh, want to have a, if any of our parents want to have a read of that book, how can they get a hold of it? Where is it? uh, What's it called? It's on.
1: I'm. I'm I'm afraid it's on Amazon, (laughs) Um, and I think there was even a discount on it up to the end of um, December. Um, So yes, I think you can just get it from Amazon. Um, If you okay, and it is called. What's it's what.
0: What's its full title? It's called
1: The A to Z. Um, It's The A to Z of Early Years. And really what it is, is I write a blog, um, which you can easily access um, uh, from my Twitter account. And I write on all the subjects that are matter. And I think one thing that people don't realise is just how powerfully political early years is and how many areas it touches on in terms of... um, that you wouldn't expect you know for example a is for apprentices and that's because we do a lot of training but that means you have to understand the whole apprentice world and um my final chapter which i submitted on the 30th of march i had already written called zoom zoom to the moon and it was all about creativity <laughs> little did i realize that by the end of march zoom had a different uh, uh, you know meaning altogether. um so it, it's everywhere in between. I talk about social enterprise. I talk about leadership. I talk about uh, venture capitalists who fund a lot of nurseries. I talk about the future. I talk what end for nursery needs to look like. So it's really a it's sort of a short chapters, a taste of what the issues are, a taste of why there's problems and um Dissent about some of the uh, areas like W for writing, you know, why should we be pushing that early when it doesn't actually make sense? Um, I've done a chapter on reading again, how do you support children to read and why is there a rush? Uh, so, all of those things can be easily read, and then I've put relevant Twitter. Um, handles, I guess you call them, uh, attached to it. And also, um, I've also put some books that I would recommend if you wanted to study the subject more. Um, so um, I, I hope you would enjoy it. And I think anyone who's interested in the, the world of early years from a policy perspective, education perspective, a potential parent whose child might be interested in becoming a nursery teacher, uh, students, our parents themselves might enjoy dipping in and dipping out with a cup of tea.
0: It is a great contribution to society, isn't it, that uh, we now have another Z on the A to Z list, which is Zoom, which is always <laughs> going to be there now, isn't it? It's all part of our lives.
1: Yeah, all Scrabble, Scrabble players are delighted <laughs> now. They've got another Z that nobody can argue with. <laughs> oh.
0: The A to Z approach sounds an incredibly comprehensive way to dealing with uh, the the complexity of this. Thank you.
1: I, I hope I, I hope it um, it does justice to some of the complex subjects. Certainly. <laughs>
0: Well, June, thank you so much for joining us here on the uh, parent show this evening and for giving us some insight uh, into your experience and knowledge of how to choose a nursery and uh, how a nursery can affect the development of your children. I'm sure many of our parents will be uh, going through the things which you've said today with uh, a, a, a new perspective on what they should be looking for when it comes to choosing a nursery. Thank you so much for joining us this evening.